Good afternoon. My name is Mary Hunt, and I'm chairing this panel, which is sponsored by the Women in Religion section and the Women's Caucus, and it is a very festive occasion to celebrate the new book of Carol P. Christ and Judith Plaskow entitled Goddess and God in the World, published by Fortress Press in 2016, celebrating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther. Uh, this was the gift of the Lutheran. <laughs> I'm joking. This is the gift of the Lutherans to, to the known world. Um, I want to welcome all of you to this session. And again, if you're coming in, please come toward the front. This is a gathering of friends. This is a festive occasion. Because this book is what in the business is called a big book. It's big in scope and trajectory. And it's big, I believe, because it will be read widely and used in countless classes in contemporary theology and in countless groups around the world. Today we have the privilege of having one such conversation with the authors and their four colleagues in discussion. Again, I want to begin by thanking Women in Religion and the Women's Caucus for their sponsorship, and I'm told that the Women and Religion business meeting, which follows immediately in this place, will commence around 6.15, so we've got a little bit more time for conversation, which is really exciting. Let me begin on a light note. I can say that the name of this room has been changed temporarily from stars at night to stars in the afternoon. <laughs> Since Judith and Carol and our respondents are what um, my colleagues, my younger colleagues especially, refer to as the rock stars of the growing constellation of feminist colleagues in religion. So um, I'm really delighted to have all of you here. And uh, in fact, the room's name has been changed temporarily. On a more serious note, given the results of the U.S. election and the clear moves to the right around the world, I dare say feminist work in religion is more important than ever. Perhaps more important even than the content of this work is learning how to have hard conversations, which is what Judith and Carol model in this volume. In Goddess and God in the World, Carol and Judith have looked at knotty questions of the nature of divinity, God or goddess, while they disagree in some specifics about the divine, Carol and Judith agree that theology matters because theology helps us, as they write, and I quote, to make sense of the world we share. Theology matters, I would say, because it also provides orientation and guidance as we face social and political crises of our own time, including injustice and inequality and the destruction of the conditions of life caused by war and global climate change. Carol and Judith believe that traditional theologies fail to make sense of the world and fail to promote the flourishing of life. They offer, as you will hear this afternoon, two distinctly different views of the divine, God and goddess, that they argue do each make sense of the world and do promote the flourishing of individuals and communities within it. Let me conclude my introduction by simply quoting them. Feminist theology arose, they write, in the wake of the demise of neo-Orthodox consensus. It was part of the theological ferment that included Vatican II, Holocaust theology, and the death of God movement. It built on the revaluing of the body and the human potential movement. It intersected with the civil rights, anti-poverty, and anti-war movements. Feminist theologians have addressed the compelling issues of our time. Moreover, they write, if it's true that traditional theologies have ignored half the human experience and denied the full humanity of women, then theologians who do not take feminist questions seriously will be likely to repeat the same mistakes. End of quote. In these troubled times, I would simply say we have no room for such mistakes. Let me say a word about each of the authors, and then I'll turn it over to Carol and Judith. Carol P. Christ, 
seated to the left of Judith Plaskow, is a feminist theologian and founding voice in the goddess movement. She taught in the US for many years before moving to Greece, where she now leads the goddess pilgrimage to Crete in the spring and in the fall. Carol is a well-respected feminist scholar whose memoir, A Serpentine Path, will be published in paperback this year, later this year. Her other books include She Who Changes, Rebirth of the Goddess, Laughter of Aphrodite, Diving Deep and Surfacing, and of course, as many of you know, with Judith Plaskow, she's the co-editor of the very popular anthologies, Woman Spirit Rising and Weaving the Visions, without which we would not have a field called feminist theology. Carol writes a blog every Monday at www.feminismandreligion.com that I highly recommend. Welcome to Carol P. Christ. <laughs> Judith Plaskow, seated to the right of Carol Christ, is Professor Emerita of Religious Studies at Manhattan College, a Jewish feminist theologian. She's the co-founder and for many years co-editor of the Journal of Feminist Studies in Religion. She's the author or editor of several notable works in feminist theology, including the very important Standing Again at Sinai, Judaism from a Feminist Perspective, and The Coming of Lilith, Essays on Feminism, Judaism, and Sexual Ethics. Judith is also a former president of the American Academy of Religion. I count both of them as friends and colleagues and have counted them as such for 40 years. Given the content of the book, this session will be a conversation as best we can manage under the circumstances. First, Judith and Carol will discuss their book. Then, instead of just hearing from the respondent Siriatum, I'm going to raise three questions that Judith and Carol suggested for the panelists to answer. And they'll answer, each panelist will answer uh, the first question, then the second question, then the third question. And then they too will have a chance to raise questions to each other and to Carol and to Judith. And then guess what? You get to be part of the conversation. So let's start with Carol and Judith, and then we'll move on to our respondents. Again, thank you for joining us and enjoy this afternoon with a full constellation of feminist theological rock stars. How does this work? Is this on? This is on? Yep. I'm not sure how close it has to be. Is that close? Is it? Is it can you hear me? Yes. Okay. As many of you know, uh, Judith and I have been working together on feminist issues and discussing feminist theology since we met as graduate students at Yale in the late 1960s. Over the years, we have agreed on many things, but we have two major differences. One is the question whether to leave or stay within a patriarchal religion and to work to transform it, as Judith has done, or to refuse to participate in a religious tradition that has done and continues to do great harm in the world, and alternatively, to seek to discover uh, other spiritual visions, as I did. Though we accepted each other's decisions, we continue to have questions about each other's choices. Second, while I was writing She Who Changes, in which I argued that process philosophy provides a coherent worldview that is compatible with feminist concerns about the body, nature, experience, and relationships, Judith and I discovered that we disagreed about the nature of divinity and divine power. As we each believed that our own views explained the world we share and provided orientation for creating a more just and inclusive world, for a time, we each thought we could convince the other to change. Mm. 
When it became clear that no, matter, no amount of rational discussion or argument could resolve our differences, we decided to take a different approach, to explore our differences in the context of our experiences and social and historical locations. In the process, we articulated the embodied theological method that combines reflection on experience with sustained conversation and philosophical analysis. So I will briefly describe the structure of the book for those of you who are not the first on your block to run out and get it. <clears throat> um, the book is divided into two parts. The heart of part one consists of three chapters each in which we lay out our theological autobiographies from childhood to the present. In the first part, we also try to contextualize our theological development with two jointly written chapters. The first is on the history of theology with special attention to 20th century theology as it was presented to us at Yale. And the second is on feminist theology. The second part of the book consists of two rounds of responses. We first respond to each other's narratives, posing sometimes sharp questions about each other's religious choices and theological perspectives, and we then respond to those responses. I found this a very challenging and exciting part of the book to write, uh, both in terms of how to articulate our disagreements with each other and how to articulate the questions that I wanted to pose for Carol, and then responding to her questions and criticisms. Um, a lot of the book is about our theological differences, <clears throat> but in the final chapter, we reflect on those assumptions we share that enabled us to work together. And we offer those shared assumptions as a possible foundation for a wider theological conversation that we hope to engage in with the panel and with you uh, this afternoon. So I would say that the book is actually several things at once. It's a theological autobiography, or it's two theological autobiographies. It's the history of a more than 40-year friendship. It's the history of the development of feminist theology and it's a work in constructive theology that proposes a new theological method. And um, this next part is on why theology matters and why we need to talk about divinity. Our book begins with a critique of the image of God as an old white man who rules the world from outside of it. We believe this view of God is problematic for at least three reasons. The first is shared by many feminist theologians who, like ourselves, agree with Mary Daly that when God is man, man is God. In addition, to the image of, in addition, the image of God as white in the history of art and in popular conceptions excludes both women and men of color. Second, we criticize the understanding that God lives outside the world and the theological idea that God is an essentially transcendent principle. The notion of divine transcendence often leads to the assumption that our goal as human beings is to rise above this world, above the body, 
and above nature in order to commune with a transcendent God. This can lead to lack of concern about injustice and ecological destruction in this world. Third, we recognize that the understanding of God as all-powerful or omnipotent produces what theologians call the free will problem and the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful, then what power is left over for human beings and other individuals in the web of life? And if God is all-powerful, then why does God not intervene to stop great evil? We find traditional answers to these questions unconvincing. Further, we believe that the idea that God chooses or permits evil in the name of a greater good is morally unacceptable. If God's understanding of good and evil is in no way analogous to our own, then what do these words even mean? We begin our conversation with three shared assumptions. The first is that images of divinity must reflect the multiplicity of the world. This must include female and racially diverse imagery, as well as imagery drawn from the whole web of life. Two, divinity, or the meaning of life, is to be found in this world and not in another world or in a state of being outside of the body and nature. Three, Traditional notions of divine omnipotence must be replaced with more satisfying explanations of the relation of, the, of divinity to the world, providing answers to the free will problem and the problem of evil. In the process of writing the book, we came to understand that we shared another assumption that is critical in our theological conversation and in fact is what made our conversation possible. We agree that all sources of revelation, whether they be texts or traditions or personal mystical experiences or other experiences, must be reflected upon. Individuals and communities are the ones who decide which texts, which traditions, which experiences we consider foundational and which we reject or choose not to make central. The recent U.S. election underscores the need to speak about and reflect on these questions. In one of my blogs on feminist religion, feminism and religion, published before the election, I wrote, what if the main thing Trump and his supporters share is a very bad theology, in which an omnipotent God created the world by fiat, created powerful white males in his image, and told them that their word is law, and that like God, they can do what they like without listening to or sharing power with anyone else. The idea that America is destined by this God to rule the world is a simple corollary to this premise. If there is any truth at all in this analysis, then it is abundantly clear that theology matters. Moreover, the evangelical Christians who supported Trump believe that their view of divinity and the divine plan for the world is revealed by God full stop, and thus they have no need to reflect on this revelation, to question it, or to hesitate to impose it on others. These attitudes would be different if they understood that all texts and traditions are interpreted by individuals and communities who themselves must decide what is most important within them. A 
central contribution of the book as we see it is its embodied theological method. Um, as Carol said, one of the things that led us to write the book is the fact that we've been arguing about theology for a long time now, decades, um, and yet each of us has been unable to convince the other of the validity of her position. And I, I think we each still believe in the greater validity of our own positions. Um, and this led us to recognize that while rational argument is important in theology, it's important to be able to articulate the reasons for our viewpoints, and we certainly do that in the book at many points. It's not sufficient. Theologies are rooted in and they emerge from the totality of our lives, the texture of our embodied experiences over the course of a lifetime. <clears throat> a point that we come back to repeatedly in the course of the book is that human beings experience the world through our bodies and our embodied thinking is always situated in relationships, communities, cultures, societies, and in the web of life. So what we do in the book is to look at a range of complex factors that have shaped each of our worldviews, our experiences of our own bodies, and obviously we are embodied very differently, um, our childhood experiences, the religious traditions in which we were raised, the class cultures in which we grew up, the ways we were shaped by the civil rights, anti-war, and feminist movements of the 60s and beyond. Some of these experiences we shared. We came to feminism together. We were both involved in the anti-war movement at Yale. But in other ways, we differed a great deal. We grew up, obviously, in different religious traditions. We come from somewhat different class backgrounds. Our families communicated very different messages to us about the civil rights movement and about issues of social justice. So the book is written in a hybrid form that combines autobiography with rigorous theological and ethical reflection. So the next question is, um, if theology and autobiography are intertwined, are all theological views equal then? Just depends on your autobiography. And, or as theologians might say it, and we certainly heard this a lot at Yale, is theology reduced to autobiography? Though we demonstrate and argue that theological views are influenced by a variety of personal and social factors, we do not simply throw up our hands and conclude that it really doesn't matter what anyone believes or that all theological views are equal. To the contrary, we argue that theological views can and must be judged by two criteria that are rational in the broadest sense of the term as well as moral. On the one hand, we ask, do our views of divinity make sense of the world we share? This means that leaving questions of revelation or revealed truth aside, we must be able to articulate our views of divinity and to show that they make sense of the multiplicity of factors in our world. For example, we ask, do views of divinity take account of both the good and the evil we experience in our daily lives and in our social worlds. We conclude that traditional views 
do not make sense of the world we share insofar as they fail to provide convincing answers to the free will problem and the problem of evil. Second, we ask, do our views of divinity promote the flourishing of the world? We find that the idea that divinity is totally transcendent of the world often leads to the conclusion that humans should rise above the world, the body, and nature in order to commune with the transcendent God. We also find that the idea that an omnipotent God is in control of everything can lead people to conclude that everything happens according to divine purpose. Both of these ideas fail to promote the flourishing of the world insofar as they seem to suggest that the evils of this world will be transcended in heaven or another world, or that what appears to us to be evil is happening according to an inscrutable divine plan. So while we share this critique of traditional theologies, Carol and I differ from each other in two important ways. First, for Carol, the goddess is a personal presence, an individual who does not have the power to intervene in the world, but who loves and cares about the world and who is always inspiring us to become the best we can be. For me, God is the impersonal creative energy that underlies, animates, and sustains all existence. Secondly, for Carol, goddess is intelligent, loving, and good. Goddess is love, the intelligent, embodied love that is in all being, as she puts it. For me, on the other hand, God is the ground of both good and evil. The wholeness, inclusiveness, and all-embracing oneness of God are much more important to me than the notion of goodness. <clears throat> of course, the other difference between us that runs through the whole book is Carol's decision to leave Christianity and become a goddess feminist and my decision to work to transform Judaism. The extent to which our religious histories have shaped our theologies is, I think, one of the intriguing questions that we kept talking about as we were writing and that, in some sense, the book leaves open. Some aspects of our worldviews were clearly shaped by our religious histories, but I don't think that others can be accounted for in those terms. We believe that both of our views provide better answers to the question of free will and the problem of evil than traditional views. We also think that both can contribute to the flourishing of the world, but we are aware that our views have different strengths and weaknesses. For example, my view that all creativity, both human and divine, is fundamentally ambiguous means that we need to acknowledge and examine the evil within ourselves and our communities, while Carol offers <coughs> the vision that a divine power inspires and supports us as we attempt to create a better world. So we wanted to uh, conclude our initial remarks with two things that we learned from each other in the process of writing the book. And um, I would say I learned a lot of things. Uh, the first I've alluded to already. The fact that we've been unable to convince each other of our positions despite marshalling our best arguments made crystal clear to me the extent to which personal theologies have incredibly complex roots. 
As I say in my initial response to Carol, working on this project has made clear to me the complex and in many ways mysterious origins of religious conviction. The admixture of emotional and intellectual influences and the ways argument can serve ex post facto to explain and justify beliefs that are much more a product of non-rational non factors than efforts to defend them would imply. <clears throat> the second thing I would say is that when I wrote my chapter on God in Standing Again at Sinai, I focused on the issue of the problematic nature of traditional images of God, and I suggested a range of new images, natural, personal, conceptual, but I didn't really discuss the theology that lay behind my proposals. Um, in the early 1990s, shortly after I finished standing again at Sinai, I did a bit of writing and speaking on the problem of evil, but for a long time, I really wasn't that interested in writing about God. So for me, this book uh, represented a turn or a return to that topic in a way that was very different than uh, was the case with Carol. Writing the book forced me to be clear about what I actually believe about God. And at a number of points in the writing process, Carol pushed me to clarify or deepen my ideas in ways that were very helpful to me. And this has been an important personal process as well as an intellectual process. For me, in the course of arguing about the choice to leave or work within traditional uh, religions, I have learned that there is no one right answer to this question and that the factors that lead us to make one choice or the other are incredibly complex. I have also become more firmly convinced that Judith and Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza were right to, when they insisted that we should not be asking or speaking about whether certain traditions have an essential core that is revelatory and liber liberating within them. Rather, we must always recognize that we are the ones who choose which aspects of traditions we consider to be central, revelatory, liberating, or the opposite, and which we consider to be less important or even harmful. In the, and I could add here that a lot of my friends who are feminist liberation theologians would not necessarily agree with this. I have a very good friend who's always telling me that the essential message of the New Testament really is Jesus's concern for the poor. And I keep saying, no, no, that's what you think it is. <laughs> and other people have different interpretations. So I, this question of interpretation, I think, and the fact that we are always choosing which aspects of the tradition we either say are good or bad or central or not central um, is really fundamental. Um, in the case of my decision to leave Christianity in writing this book, I came to understand more clearly that because I come from a family of mixed marriages in regard to both ethnicity and religion, including the marriage of my parents, which was Catholic and Christian science, of two of my grandparents who were Catholic and, and Lutheran, and of several of my other grandparents, I came to understand that I do not have the kind of ethnic and family connections 
to a particular version of Christianity or a particular denomination um, that many Jewish and Christian feminists say is one of the main reasons they can't leave their tradition because it feels to them like family. I also came to see the ways in which what H. Richard Niebuhr called the social structure of denominationalism, including ethnicity and class, and in my case, class wounding, affected my decision not to affiliate as an adult with a Protestant denomination. And for those of you who haven't read that book, he talks about the fact that Lutherans tend to be German or Scandinavian, um, Episcopalians tend to be upper class and have roots in the, um, the Revolutionary War, shall we say, and um, <coughs> you know, so on and so on. Finally, Judith's questions prodded me to rethink and rephrase my definition of goddess as the intelligent embodied love that is the ground of all being, which was the way I phrased it in Rebirth of the Goddess, to the intelligent embodied love that is in all being. And I know that one isn't clear here, but you can read the book. <laughs> in short, I accepted John Cobb's distinction between what he calls the two ultimates, the personal God and the ground of being. Well, I think you can see from this uh, very brief snippet of the book that it is, as I promised earlier, a big book. It is a complex book. It is a book with a variety of possibilities, both in terms of teaching and discussion. Again, I want to reiterate, goddess and God in the world, conversations in embodied theology. And it is available here at the AAR from Fortress Press. Thank you very much to Carol Christ and to Judith Plasco for starting us off in this discussion. And now I'd like to turn to our four panelists who will be answering the questions we're raising seriatim. So Monica Coleman, Professor of Constructive Theology and African-American Religions at Claremont School of Theology in Southern California, serves as co-director for the Center of Process Studies and Director of Process and Faith. Reverend Dr. Coleman is an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. She's the author or editor of six books that focus on the role of faith in addressing critical social and philosophical issues. Among them are her memoir, Bipolar Faith, and another one called Making a Way Out of No Way. Our second speaker is Aisha Hadayatullah, who's associate professor at the University of San Francisco. She teaches Islamic studies, undergraduate courses on Islam, gender, race, and, eth and ethics. Her research interests include feminist exegesis of the Quran, representations of women in early Islamic history, construction of femininity and masculinity in the Islamic tradition, and so forth. Um, her book, her first book, Feminist Edges of the Quran, published by Oxford University Press, examines and critically responds to the emerging body of Muslim feminist scholarship on the Quran in the U.S. She serves as co-chair for the Islam Gender Women's Group of the American Academy of Religion. Our third member is Miranda Shaw, who serves as Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Richmond. Miranda is a Buddhist scholar known for her work on women in Buddhism, chronicled in her book, Passionate Enlightenment, which has been translated into no fewer than five languages. She's also the author of Buddhist Goddesses of India, an historical uh, study based on extensive research and deep engagement in the divine uh, feminine. 
Miranda is currently completing a companion volume, Buddhist Goddesses in Tibet and Nepal. And we're looking forward to hearing her remarks this afternoon. And finally, Julia Watts-Belser. Congratulations, recently tenured professor in the theology department at Georgetown, where she works in Jewish studies with a focus in Talmud, rabbinic literature, and Jewish ethics. Julia's research brings ancient texts into conversation with disability studies, queer theory, feminist thought, and environmental ethics. Her work focuses on classical Jewish responses to drought and disaster, portrayals of sexual violence and rabbinic responses to enslavement and empire, as well as gender, disability, and the dissident body in late antiquity. As an ordained rabbi, Professor Belser also writes queer feminist Jewish theology and brings disability culture into conversation with Jewish tradition. She serves on the board of the Society for Jewish Ethics and holds leadership positions in the American Academy of Religion. I'd like to invite each of these panelists to respond first to the question, and these are Judith and Carol's questions, so um, I think you can see how they emerge very directly out of the text and out of the conversations that Carol and Judith have already begun this afternoon. And the first is the notion of embodied theology, which says that our theologies are not simply or primarily rational constructions, but they're rooted in the totality of our lives. So if each of you could tell us a little bit, and you remember it's three minutes, if each of you could tell us about your embodied theology, in light of what you've read in Carol and Judith's book, it would start us off in conversation. So I'm going to ask Monica to go first, Aisha to follow, Miranda, and then Julia. Thank you. Embodied theologies. Greetings. It's great to be here among my feminist theological rock stars. Um, my embodied theology emerges from three sources. One source is the radical incarnation of a progressive Christianity that sees the divine in a Palestinian teacher-healer and the faith communities of early Christianity and ancient Israel. My embodied theology is also sourced from traditional Yoruba religion that honors divinity in women, men, twin babies, storms, plants, and other elements of nature and dance. A second source of my embodied theology, like Kristen Plaskow, emerges from my own embodied experience. For me, as cisgendered woman, sometimes queer, sex-positive, light-skinned African-American woman with dreadlocks and a blood disease, dislocating kneecaps, and an often invisible, sometimes disabling mental health challenge. My embodied experiences affect how I live in the world, and they affect my spiritual practices and how I know and relate to God. A final important source for my embodied theology is my experience as a mother who has birthed and extended nursed a girl child. Nurturing another body within and with my own body and radical mothering significantly expands and deepens my understanding of the divine as creator, nurturer, teacher, and parent. Unlike Kristen Plaskow, my embodied theology emerges as a given. I am the heir, the beneficiary, really, of the ground that Christ, Plaskow, Renita Weems, Dolores Williams, Marjorie Suhaki, Sally McFaig, and many others broke. They are my writers, teachers, and mentors. I encountered and took for granted feminist and womanist theologies when I began to think intentionally and constructively about my own theology. That said, it was my experience as a victim and survivor of sexual violence and as a minister, activist, advocate against sexual violence that pushed me towards a processed theological worldview. When I read the curated narrative experiences of Christ and Plaskow, I see the great distance between us, shaped primarily through our generational and racial differences. Amidst their challenges as women, as non-Christian, and within the shifting boundaries of ethnicity, race, religion in the United States, 
I still feel the whiteness dripping off the pages. We are foreigners. And yet their theological conclusions of feminism, goddess, earthiness, and panentheism still feel like shoes in which my feet fit. I see how their theologies emerge from their personal experiences and the experiences of their communities just as much as my theology emerges from mine. I hope and find that the theology that emerges from my experiences is as meaningful to those with whom I share embodiment as it is with those with whom I do not. Does that not suggest, or does that suggest, that there may be some element of truth in these progressive, multi-religious beliefs that we espouse? Thank you. Aisha? So in my own experience as a Muslim, what stood out to me in my young life from the Islamic tradition were notions of the imminence of God, the Quranic statement of God being closer to us than our jugular vein, and so forth. It was a feeling of direct and intimate connection with God through the oral recitation of the Qur'an and cyclical repetition, and the very physical ritual salah prayers on a daily basis, and this, of course, all in the absence of a formalized mediating clerical structure. So this intimacy imminence uh, was always there for me, and yet there was always this tension between that knowledge and experience of God's imminence on the one hand, and on the other hand, the inclination in my family and community against asking questions about the exact nature of what or who God was, a sort of suspicion of theological questioning as inappropriate and perhaps damaging and ultimately pointless speculation, since these are not matters for us to fully know or understand as humans. I was taught that God was nothing like human beings, except for there were male pronouns being used. But really, everyone around me was satisfied with the notion of God's incomprehensibility. No one was really troubled by that. In contrast, I was from a very young age wondering and worrying and praying precociously. And I was the child of immigrants to the US, cut off from an environment where your surroundings are Islamically infused landscapes and soundscapes, not having access where I was yet to an Islamic school. All this meant that I was living in a very desacralized world, disconnected from Islam. My family was not particularly religious. There was a Baptist Christianity. Um, it was the Baptist Christianity of the South where I was raised, but I was actually afraid of it. And so I really experienced God almost exclusively through my reading of the Quran, and it was for me the verbatim word of God. I washed my hands before touching it, kissed it out of respect, and felt safe and protected in its presence. But this way of experiencing the text as the primary channel to God was about being in a non-Muslim environment, reading it alone, absent of a larger devotional environment that keeps you from taking the text at face value, that helps you place yourself in a lineage of understanding the text as a living, breathing revelation of God in the world. The only model I had for Muslims engaging with the word of God was a kind of proof texting, almost sola scriptura mode of singling out the text. So that was really my only experience of God in isolation under this strange convergence of circumstances. So when the Quran starts to trouble me as an adult and I start to ask questions about it, that becomes really the mode for asking questions about God's omniscience and goodness and justice. So my embodied theology centers on dancing and my research and uh, spiritual orientation and desire to reinvigorate my body after doctoral work 
led me to a tantric dance uh, practice in Kathmandu. The somatic exploration revealed patriarchal shaming and violations held as bodily memories, as hidden barriers to well-being that dancing could break through. Over the years, dancing helped me delve through layers of conditioning to the wellsprings of sensitivity and vitality, passion and power that I had not found through other means. I realized that moving in new ways generates new possibilities of thinking, sensing, and being. Rather than viewing my body as a medium of experience or an instrument to do my bidding, I engage in bodily movement, my body's spontaneous dancing, as a creative stream of guidance, wisdom, and healing. Dance requires no formal training. It simply involves a shift from functional, routinized motions to moving deliberately, allowing visceral impulses that, uh, to inspire movements that express their qualities as spontaneous and as organic rhythms, patterns, and shapes. Attuning to our moving body can focus our awareness and senses on one thing, this integration is in itself wholeness, inherently healing and empowering and nourishing. It draws us into the present moment, to the primal pulse of life, giving us access to what is authentic and untamed, a fully bodied presence in the world. The tantric tradition envisions dance as a karma, as a yoga for karmic cleansing. A Kimura Lamotte, um, with whom I've been in long conversation, articulates an, an, a, a theology of dancing in Western theological terms. And others extend dance theology into environmental awareness and activism. For women, dancing is a way to, to fulfill the feminist desideratum, to reclaim our bodies, heal our wounds, heal our body wisdom, and um, gain the wholeness we need to reweave the world. When I was maybe four years old, my father built me a sandbox. I used to run my hands carefully beneath the plywood seat into the shaded sand and if I got lucky, I'd find a big, beautiful toad. I remember cradling a toad in my cupped hands, his skin smooth and cool, his belly soft and languid. I remember that perfect moment when he opened his eye, when I looked and realized he was alive. When I think about theology, I think first and foremost of that moment of connection, that sense of an eye opening up and looking back. I am a rabbi rooted in the rhythms of Jewish text and tradition, but I didn't grow up in a religious home. I grew up talking to trees 
listening to stones inhabiting what Charles Taylor calls an utterly enchanted world. For me, embodied theology begins with the moment I felt goddess like a live wire down my spine. I was 14, standing on my grandparents' balcony, letting the gravel stones slip through my fingers, watching the sun sink through the trees. The sky was turning purple, shot through with gold. Those rocks were humming in my hand, and presence flooded through me, ancient, alive, feminine, entire. I believe theology is a matter of the body, not simply because our whole lives matter, but because my theology is intertwined with the particulars of my own flesh. I'm a woman with a disability. I'm a wheelchair user. I draw a powerful, sensual joy in tandem with my wheelchair. The way her tires grip into asphalt or concrete, how I lean into a curve and flow down a gentle grade, how I feel the vibration of earth and wheel through the soles of my shoes or the balls of my feet. My sense of God is bound up with these kinships, the way flesh flows into frame, into tire, into air. This is how the holy moves through me, this exhilarating physicality of body and wheel, the intricate interplay of muscle and spin. I find God, I find goddess in and through the countercultural choice to embrace this body, these gritty, gimpy, willowy limbs, to say yes to these quirky, dissident bones. For me, claiming the brilliant, subversive beauty of being alive in this particular disabled flesh is bound up with theological and ethical conviction. To spit back stares, to cherish this flesh, to love fiercely, tenderly, what is so often disregarded and despised, and to set my life in service of fashioning a world where our bodies, all our bodies, are meant to survive. Thank you. Thank you for those powerful responses to the first question. Uh, we could stop right there and uh, continue with a, a, a pointed discussion on those themes. But I want to raise the other two questions because I think we'll get equally rich responses. Obviously, uh, panelists, the theological differences between Judith and Carol are a central theme of the book. Where would you locate your own theology in relation or in contradistinction to those differences? Did you find yourself, as you were reading this book, taking sides? Or were there components of each writer's approach that resonated with your own? <coughs> Did you come up with an entirely different way of thinking about the divine? I'd like to begin here with Aisha and then Miranda, Julia, and, and with Monica. Thank you. Go ahead, Aisha. Well, it was useful, very useful for me to think about the problems and contradictions associated with many Muslim conceptions of a personal God who acts in history, but is also non-anthropomorphic. 
um, of how one reconciles the omniscience and omnipotence of God with suffering and injustice and evil in the world and what it means to think of God and God's justice as incomprehensible or not fully comprehensible to humans. I have to admit that I'm not sure where I am in terms of the differing positions that Judith and Carol lay out, and I'm still trying to grapple with the question of how God reveals God's self to us in the first place, so still thinking. But there are a few things that are clearer to me. Um, in reading Carol's chapters, I had to admit to myself my discomfort with female imagery and language of God. I, I think this parallels my distaste for male imagery and language for God, or at least I hope. I, I also discovered some shame um, about this discomfort with female imagery. As a feminist, I worry that this is because I've internalized a male normativity in theology, and I also wonder if it is rooted in an unexamined prejudice against anthropomorphism as a Muslim. Still, I find myself really fascinated by the history of the paganism of the pre-Islamic Arabs and goddesses that were worshipped in Mecca before the coming of Islam, and of course fascinated by Sufi conceptions of masculine and feminine polarities of God's qualities. But at this point, I think my interest is historical and mystical rather than more clearly and systematically theological as laid out here. So I think I found a particular resonance with Judith's positions. Like Judith, I come to feminist theology as a member of a minority religious community, one might say beleaguered. Um, there was never an option for me to leave Islam. I have resolved to stay and work within my tradition, still engaging with scripture, even with its references to violence and domination, since I don't believe that the language is there for us to extract and translate and adopt in human expression, as the Quran doesn't seem to have been a text that was mined like this for most of Muslim history. I think it's necessary to reflect on the Quran through a meditative process of reflection, to come to an approach to reading the Quran as a source, uh, sorry, a process of reflection to come to an understanding of God rather than the more instrumental, modernist, proof-texting approach to the reading of the Qur'an as a source of simple information transferal. To go through that in order to understand how it is that God's qualities are reflected in us in their profound ambiguity. So it could be that the category of what scripture really is and how we hold it responsible and how we know God through it is central and perhaps different for me. My epistemology is Buddhist uh, with a sousan of tantric mysticism. And I evaluate truth claims first by how absolute they claim to be. And I share with Judith and, and Carol a kind of a relativist position that reality yields to multiple perspectives and none of which can be all-encompassing. All perspectives hold partial truth but cannot claim objectivity. And the more encompassing of you, the more perspectives it takes into account, um, the more valid it is for me. Uh, my mystical leaning perhaps predisposes me to a philosophical position of, of uh, non-duality. Language cannot define ultimate reality or truth because it relies on distinctions. As a consistent non-dualist, however, I cannot uphold a distinction between duality and non-duality. So I don't disavow verbal and verbal formulations and performative practices, 
And in this, I am in resonance with Judith in her um, I guess embrace of religious practices as a way to invoke experiences of awe, you know, generosity, I mean gratitude and a sublime range of, of human capacity. Words may not define reality, but they may express and evoke it. In the absence of full validity, what then is the measure of truth? That is the pragmatic test of how salutary are their practical applications of benefits. In the Buddhist frame, this is assessed in terms of suffering. Does it diminish suffering for the one who holds and acts on it and for those who experience it, its effects? Does it conduce to well-being? Does it uplift, inspire, nourish, empower, and liberate in a way that takes into account the interdependence of all our lives? So in Buddhism, this cannot be defined as benefit for one or for few. It must include human interactions as well as other living beings in the earth, our living environment. Judith and Carol both share a sense of God or goddess as present in all that is. But they differ, as they've mentioned, over the question of this idea of God as a personal presence. Their book draws these two distinct possibilities together through John Cobb's theological idea of two ultimates, a powerful way, I think, to say both and to the personal and the pervasive. I, too, want a language to say yes to both of these dimensions of the divine. But I find that I myself shy away from the notion of two ultimates. I see this more as two frames, two modes of perception, a deep unity dancing with multiplicity. I think the revelation of presence, of God as personal presence, is so particular. It is a relation that unfolds, as Jewish Midrash teaches, face after face, and every face different. Each of us who knows a God, I think, <clears throat> knows a God that only we can know. I share with Carol a sense of God goddess as one who yearns, who feels, who desires wholeness and joy for you and me and the trees and the toads. In the face of hate, in the face of poverty, in the face of pervasive racism, in the face of despair, I simply cannot stomach an indifferent God. I cannot imagine living in relation with one who does not care. In order to hold this claim in the face of violence, I have relinquished entirely the classical notion of God's power. 
My take on God, divine power is drawn in large part from disability experience. An activist friend of mine with significant muscular atrophy describes the way that disability has honed her capacity to direct a staff of personal attendants, friends, and occasional strangers. And that's how I understand God's power. When God wants something done, (laughs) brute force simply will not do the job. My God cannot pick up a single stone without a human hand to lift it. When God desires direct action, in this world of matter, she must inspire and cajole, adapt and orchestrate, trust and yearn. I suspect God finds it occasionally frustrating. <laughs> As a process theologian with multi-religious practices and commitments, I understand Pascal and Chris' differences quite well. In process terms, it is, as Chris cites John Cobb, we acknowledge multiple ultimates, either two, three, or five, depending on which process thinker you follow. For Chris to see a personal God as the most ultimate resonates most clearly with my own faith that thinks of God in fairly personal embodied terms. I am a serious theist, choosing 401 divinities over a non-theistic faith if given a choice. I understand the multiplicity of divinity to be a difference of degree rather than of kind. This asserts a radical incarnation for seeing the divine in a spirit, a person, animals, elemental forces, and written and oral texts of religious and cultural communities. Yet I also see how creativity, the process of change, a non-personal force can be just as ultimate. I can easily see and imagine a theology that holds goodness and evil in the world and divine together acknowledging the great agency of people and creation. The Yoruba concept of Ashe describes an embodied, quantifiable, and invisible force that contains the power of life and agency that is morally neutral and yet shapeable by the intents and agency of humanity and other parts of creation. This personal, ancestral, intimate God is as meaningful to me as the belief that there are not cosmological battles between good and evil, as much as there is the importance of the ways humanity works with this ever-present agentic power. So my own faith leans more towards Chris, but without believing that Plaskow is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But where Chris finds comfort in the love of God, I find resonance in epistemology. I care less that God is loving, although it's nice that God is, and more that God knows me intimately from the inside out. I lean more towards Chris's expression of divinity. I actually plastered photocopies of her concrete images of the goddesses around my room when I first read Rebirth the Goddess. I love the embodied concrete, I can hold it in my hand, metaphorical, personal, elemental images of God. But I also know that Oya is in the storm, and Ashe can be creative or destructive, and I operate in the world as if this is true too. So maybe I speak of the divine like Christ, and I adorn divinity like Pascal. Perhaps I straddle these theologies as I straddle religions, or I don't require sharp distinctions between goodness and evil, or I have, I have great comfort with many ultimates grounded in women's experiences. It feels increasingly like a sacred conversation. I appreciate that, and I also appreciate so much that the panelists have been so respectful 
of the time constraints that we have placed upon them for these responses, so there'll be plenty of time for others to engage in conversation. So I turn to the third question. If theologies are rooted in the totality of our lives, how then do we evaluate different theologies? What criteria do you use to think about theological adequacy? Carol and Judith talk about good and bad theologies, the impact of theologies on daily life. How do you see this? I'm going to ask Miranda to start, then Julia, then Monica, then, uh, yeah, Monica and then Aisha. Okay, so we'll start with Miranda. Thank you. Thank well, you. I reversed the two numbers two and three, but as a non-dualist, it's all the same to me. <laughs> so I find myself resonating with Carol in my understanding of divine reality as personal and my conception of divine reality as goddess. Intellectually, I realize that my concept may be a metaphor, envisioning ultimate reality, the creative source of all that is, as maternal, a cosmic womb, a great mother reality. I don't, however, experience who I meet in silence and prayer, in sacred places and my dancing body as simply metaphorical. I am compelled by the power of her manifestations to regard her as living presence. At the same time, with Judith and Carol, I honor those who relate to the ground of being in other gendered and impersonal forms. I didn't find my way of thinking about the divine named in the book. I accord reality to all deities as manifestations of a unitary divine source. Perhaps I could call it omnitheism. To some deities, um, I accord ontological reality and agency. To others, I accord historical reality as forces in human history. I found myself resonating with Carol and her biography and theology. She sounds like a Mahayana Buddhist when she characterizes the ground of being as intelligent, divine, and embodied love. This accords with the two primary qualities of reality Mahayana identifies as wisdom and compassion. These are personal qualities. Wisdom is awareness, a capacity for knowing resonance throughout the living matrix. Compassion is the ultimate harmony, an infinite capacity for mutually life-enhancing relatedness among all living beings within the web of life. This makes the universe for me a living reality and me one life in this personal being this extended personal reality. When I was in rabbinical school, I struggled with spiritual dissonance. I felt caught in too tight strictures of acceptable Jewish theologies. I was torn between talking about God in ways that felt safe that wouldn't get me expelled, and giving voice to the God that I know. On the day that I was ordained, when I spoke my first words of Torah as a rabbi, I said in place of the traditional Jewish idiom, the Holy One, blessed be she. People laughed. They broke out. It was a crowd of 500 people. They broke out into a little 
nervous titter. Now, I refused them. I held my power, and I made those words stick. But I remember the loneliness, the estrangement of feeling my God to be unspeakable. So I have a strong, deep investment in theological multiplicity. Theology, as I see it, is a grammar of the imagination, and I want us to become multilingual. I want us to remember that all our languages, all our ways of mirroring the infinite, are limited and partial and also vital, generative, and rich. Feminists working within institutional religious traditions often find ourselves in a position of divided loyalties to the tradition as interpreted and to feminist commitment, by which I mean not just abstract principle, but the lives and bodies and spirits of real living people. Discussing recently with a student the Hebrew Bible's objection to the service of disabled priests, that student recently asked me, how do you justify that? I said, I don't. I feel no obligation to justify the text or apologize for it. I acknowledge it. I acknowledge it as an expression of stigma, violence, and marginality that has profoundly shaped my life and that remains a real potent force in this world. But I choose to read it as descriptive, not prescriptive, as an expression of what all too often is, not what ought to be. I'm becoming increasingly unapologetic about the fact that my ethics owes more to Adrian Rich, Gloria Anzaldua, and Audre Lorde than it does to the Bible or to the Mishnah. Thank you. I want theologies that help us get fierce, and I want theologies that help us stay brave. I want theologies that help us recognize and resist violence and oppression, that call us to put our own flesh and our own minds, our own hearts, in service of a world made generous and loving and whole, a world where black lives matter, a world where there are no disposable bodies, a world where disabled bodies, brown bodies, fat bodies, slow bodies, women's bodies, trans bodies, immigrant bodies, Muslim bodies, Jewish bodies, silent, stuttering, blind, and queer bodies, old bodies, homeless bodies, all our bodies are safe on the streets of our cities. I want a theology that calls this the cornerstone obligation of our souls, that grounds religious life in this commitment, a world, as the psalmist says, where peace and justice kiss. Does it advocate for justice? Does it improve quality of life? Does it resist oppression in all but especially systemic forms? Does it adequately and accurately reflect what we know about the world? Is it meaningful for theorists and everyday practitioners alike? Does it work? Can I express it verbally? 
Can it be danced, sung, or thrown into a pattern? Does it liberate? Literally, does it creatively transform both our souls and the world into a place with less torture, less slavery, less poverty, and less suffering? Do I need it? Do I need this faith, this belief, this way of being in the world with myself, my community, and what is ultimate like I need air? When I can say yes, I feel like there is good theology. My normative criteria come from feminists, womanists, process thinkers, and my fellow practitioners. This is how we measure what is good, right, and true. Kristen Plaskow give us good theologies. They do this because they care so deeply and are rooted so concretely and vulnerably in experience. With clear condemnation, they eschew those private hegemonic notions of deity that deny and exclude. And they have, in their own ways, drawn the circle wider not just for themselves and their own theologies, but for the rest of us whose voices are mute in mainstream Western theologies of transcendent God. I don't think we have to agree or persuade each other to be good and right. Plaskow and Chris model such collaboration amidst difference, in part because they're moving in the same direction holding hands. That there are many and perhaps there must be many paths to the complex and difficult ends of beauty and justice for all. Because there are enough ideas and theologies that don't care about inclusion and worldly transformation and ideals of community and justice. Can I also say that I love that they did not let Christians own the term theology. As goddess and Jewish, Christ and Plaskow claim that their clear, articulate, embodied beliefs about goddess and Yahweh and creativity is theology. Without any explicit mention, they assumedly and assuredly wrest this term from the fists of those who think only Christians can be theological. That everyone else must be thought, or ideas, or practices, or cosmology, or philosophy. No, they say, we believe. We all theologize. I often tell my daughter I want her to be strong and safe and brave. If the theology can get her there, I am happy. Well, I've been told nearly all my life since I was a girl in direct and indirect ways that I'm troubled by the Islamic tradition having deep contradictions with regard to the equality of men and women because I don't have an adequate or real enough or deep enough experience of God. And that if I just had the real experience of God's beauty and mercy, that I wouldn't be troubled. And the latest claim like this has actually been directed at me just this year by a pioneering scholar inside the field of Muslim feminist scholarship. So not a good set of evaluative criteria. But here's how I think um, there, there are good uh, criteria for evaluating a theology. As Judith and Carol point out, it has to account seriously for injustice and evil in the world, and I think it has to systematically explain and justify how we are called to justice, even as the tradition is steeped in deep ambiguity and contradiction. I also agree that the evaluative criteria have to be both rational but not limited to the tests of rationality. And here I tend to think that something of the concept of God's unknowability is still important in our evaluative criteria. I think it is actually important to maintain some degree of surrender to the incomprehensibility of God and God's justice 
to safeguard against the projection of our own sensibilities onto the divine, since they are so often formed through self-serving or myopic ideologies or just limited by our temporal lenses. For example, I worry about the modern, right, uh, the modern rights-based paradigms of justice that color our view of God's justice and injustice and the contradictions of that. So lifting up other ways of knowing, I think, are important for preventing the projection of our own selves onto God, turning God into an idol that is really a vehicle uh, for self-worship. So I think a balance is necessary between a kind of surrender, meditative patience uh, with the mysterious uh, uh, and, and uncertain and an active, immediate engagement, struggle, and resistance with regard to the elements in traditional theologies that sanction injustice. So what I'm saying is that a combination of different epistemologies will often be necessary for evaluating good theology. Thank you very much to the respondents for getting this conversation off to uh, a lovely start as well as a profound start. I'd like to uh, thank Judith and Carol once again for writing this book because I think that you have, uh, in what's been evoked already from our panelists, you have begun to really unearth a conversation we need to have at a time when we need to have it. That being the case, I would like to take, and I'm going to start my watch, three minutes for everybody to get involved in the conversation. Find somebody that's near you and begin to explore with them this sense of embodied theology and how it's working for you. I can see people kind of itching to get into the conversation. So right there, when we finish our three-minute start, I'm going to ask each of our panelists to raise a question to Judith and to Carol. That will begin the conversation up here, and then we'll all be involved together. So you start with your embodied conversation, and we'll begin with our questions in three minutes. Thank you very much for joining in the conversation. Thank you for your part in the conversation. We're now going to continue with the questions from our panelists. Before we do so, I'd like to make two announcements. One is that, as you can see, this session... Good afternoon again. Uh, I was going to dance just to kind of get people's attention. But, um, you'll see, as you can see, this session is being uh, videotaped, and it will be available through the AAR. I can imagine no better teaching tool than this. Um, on the other hand, if I were to really stretch my imagination, I would also think about the water teleconference, which Carol and Judith did uh, about six weeks ago on the book, and it's available on the website www.waterwomensalliance.org, and you can use that as well. It's an audio conversation between Judith and Carol with uh, participation from, from people, so that's available, um, and that's free, unlike the AAR video. So go to the WATER website for that teleconference. And again, these are resources. There are also uh, written notes with that, and these are resources that you can use for teaching because I do believe firmly that this book, as I think our panelists have demonstrated, and I heard one of them uh, commenting to Carol and Judith, this is a kind of book, this is the book, um, but also the kind of book that I think takes us into a new place in terms of feminist work in religion. And as such, I think it requires this kind of very serious conversation, but also what it sparks and how it models that conversation is as important as the content in the book. So now I'm going to ask the panelists, beginning with Miranda and coming right down the line, Monica, Julia, and Aisha, to raise a question to Carol and Judith. 
and I might even have one up my sleeve too, if time permits. And then Carol and Judith will make some brief remarks about the questions, and then we'll open it up for all of you to get into the conversation in a plenary way. We'll finish by 6.10, and then we'll have the business meeting for the Women in Religion section at 6.10. Thank you. Go right ahead, Miranda. All right. So I, I attended very closely to your language about how the body and mind interact, how they're totally interfused, thoroughly interfused. And I wondered, I don't know if this is something you can answer on short notice, but I'm interested in um, not only in how your bodily experience, experiences, um, but how bodily movements may have figured in significant religious moments and the insights that they generated. That's it. I had a nerdy process metaphysical question for Carol, but I'll ask this one instead. Um. <laughs> Maybe you'll get a chance to ask yeah. yeah. You probably know the answer better than me. <laughs> your engagement, both of your engagements, reminds me of a question recently posed to my colleague students. My womanist theology colleague, Andrea White, and our good friends. We teach each other's work, we co-write grants, our children play together. We are both philosophical theologians with womanist commitments. She is Bardian and I am Whiteheadian. <laughs> a student asked us if we are constantly disagreeing because of our different theologies. And we thought about it and we laughed and we said we don't actually talk to each other about theology. And so from that place, I want to ask if your theological differences are the content of most of your conversations or if you actually spend more of your dialogical space talking about something else. <laughs> and if so, what? <laughs> So Judith and Carol, I'm interested in your take on a Jewish category that's very important to me, and that's the category of chova, of obligation. In classical Jewish tradition, this is often framed as obligation to the mitzvot, to the commandments. But I think, at least for me, it can also express a powerful feminist sensibility that our action is not optional that our engagement is something more than just a matter of charitable good feeling. And so I'm wondering whether that's a category, that idea of obligation is a category or an idea that interests you, and if so or if not, how and why. I think in my own theology, I find that um, I've been really deeply impacted by American Protestantism, American Protestantism, and I wondered if um, you could say something about how the how your location in the U.S. or not in the U.S. Um, has impacted your theologies. Thank you, and I'll take the privilege of adding another question to the mix here. Um, Carol and Judith, you're both very clear um, that what goes on is here and now, that God is or goddess uh, is imminent, that the world is what we've got. Um, I happen to agree with you, by the way. Do you have anything to say to people who seek transcendence, who believe in heaven or in an afterlife? I suspect, though I might be wrong, that they might be the vast majority of people, mm -hmm. um, at least in the U.S., and at least um, if people are honest about wishes and hopes, there might be more of us who want more uh, than we admit. 
is there any way to extend this conversation to them? Um, is there any way to bring this conversation on their terms? What does it take to have the hard conversation with people who don't share the most basic assumption that you have that this world is all there is, but who really do live as if an afterlife were real, uh, or at least they want it, or some of us might want it. Um, did, do we miss something not having this kind of conversation with them, and um, might there be some relationship between that and the next president of the United States? Um, that we, we may have missed some conversations that are really hard to have with people who see the world quite so very differently than we do that makes the differences between you two look rather small uh, after all. Just wondering. <laughs> so I'd like to invite Carol and Judith to answer whatever they'd like to respond to with these questions, and then we'll open it up for everyone to join in the conversation. So with thanks again to the panelists for very good questions. Well, first of all, I just want to thank the panelists for your really beautiful responses. I, I can't tell you how gratifying it is to me that the book has sparked the kind of responses that you gave. I think that's exactly what we hoped for it, that you know, our sharing our journeys would evoke um, you know, what you've given us. So thank you so much. Um, so the question of bodily <coughs> movement is is interesting. I, I, you know, when I think of my most important revelatory moments um, that I talk about in the book at Iguazu Falls and the Amazon, I was really standing still. <laughs> it was moving. Yeah, it was moving. The, yeah, the the world was absolutely moving and awake and alive and around me and turbulent around me, but I, I was standing still, so, so that's very interesting. <coughs> I think, the, how much do we talk about theology? This is, a, um, this is a bad moment to ask that question because we've been working on the book pretty hard for the last, <laughs> for the last year or so, and so we've been well, talking so. a lot. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot yeah. about theology lately. We've certainly talked about many other things uh, in the <laughs> we gossip and <laughs> the cause yes right right we gossip right we gossip yeah we we talk about the nitty gritty of what's going on in our lives um, yeah I have thought about the category of obligation because I've asked myself give, you know given its importance in Judaism what what happens if there is no personal God who obligates one? And to me, it's the oneness and the interdependence of creation that um, is the source of obligation. That, that knowing that everything is interconnected, I am obligated to act on behalf of the interconnected whole. So, so that sense of ethical obligation there is really strong. Um, there are a couple of particular mitzvot that I experienced. There's a Jewish prayer, blessed are you, Lord our God. I don't say that. Blessed are you, spirit of the world, um, who has obligated us to X. 
And there are two times when I actually experienced that. One is eating matzah on Passover, which I could actually see is connected to the, um, the obligation to do justice in the world. Uh, but the other is sitting in the sukkah on Sukkot. And that, <coughs> that doesn't, well, I, I suppose it connects me to the earth and it, it makes me aware of the presence of God in, in the earth. Um, so, you know, I could connect it that way. But I, I'm aware that those are two things that don't quite fit in my um, theology. Um, I have to say that for a long, that, that I've, while I've been engaged in issues that are particular to the U.S. my whole life, um, I, um, I, I first learned about the civil rights movement from my father um, when I was 10, and that was a very important moment in my childhood, and I've been um, engaged in um, issues of race ever since. Um, I have not thought of my American location until recently, so that's, that's a difficult question for me to answer, and I, I realize that a lot of the sense of entitlement that's probably present in my thought and my theology comes from that American location. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have to answer your question, Mary. I really, I, the question of heaven is just totally not interesting to me, and I, um, <coughs> I do think that that comes out of my Reformed Judaism. I, I remember my mother being absolutely appalled when, I, during my teen years, when the rabbi mentioned that Jews actually have a concept of heaven. So, you know, I, I mean, I grew up without any notion of an afterlife, and I've never felt any kind of need for it. But I do, I do appreciate your question. Um, you know, do we miss anything by not having that conversation? And I've certainly thought as we were writing the book um, that our disagreements, while important to us, are disagreements within a fairly narrow place on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And often it's those disagreements within a narrow place that come to seem more gigantic. You know? And, you know, what do we do with the whole rest of the spectrum. I mean, I, I think that is an important conversation. And, and I guess how I might begin it is not by talking so much about heaven, but asking people what they see as the connection between who they are here and what kind of lives here they live here and what their commitments are here and whether they're going to get into heaven or not. And then how important is it, you know, is it important that we agree that there's no heaven or that there is heaven if, you know, if we have similar views of what it means to be an ethical person to lead a good life here and now? Um, 
Um, Miranda asked about bodily movement, and she um, spoke. Oh, I also want to say how touched I was by all of you. And actually, I was very jealous when I was listening to you because we didn't talk about, we didn't talk so personally in our introduction. And it was so beautiful what each one of you said. And I just have to respond to Monica, whiteness dripping off the page. And there's a time when I would have felt really ashamed of that, but in a way, Thank God it was. I mean, if we, if, I was, if we weren't writing out of our own bodies, then whiteness wouldn't have tripped off the page in the same way. So, um, but of course, that points out the need for many other voices to be included, which, again, as Judith said, is what we hope, that we will inspire many other voices to write as in so that their color and their experiences drip off the page, too. Blessed be. Um, bodily movement um, has always been important to me. I was a, never been athletic, but I was a child that you know loved to skate and and ride my bike all the time and climb trees and swim in the Pacific Ocean. And I think some of my earliest mystical experiences were in all of those activities, but particularly uh, swimming in the Pacific Ocean on a quiet day when I could float and feel a oneness with the universe. Uh, through the waves and the movement of the waves and in a, another type of day when the waves were crashing over me and once I almost drowned, um, feeling part of a great force. Um, and for me, dancing has also been very important in my life. I'm a right-left dyslexic person, so the idea of three to the left and two to the right is very hard for me to follow. Um, so <clears throat> I actually learned to dance uh, rock and roll free dancing, and that was very important for me coming into my body um, in graduate school. And now, um, I live in, I've lived in Greece for more than 20 years, and I love to do circle dancing and also ballet dancing, and I do this in Betico, if any of you know what that is, because I live in Lesbos, and that's what we do there. Um, and um, yes, I feel, I wrote an article, we were talking about it at lunch, called When I Dance, I Am Greek. And um, that's the most way I feel Greek is when I'm dancing Greek dancing. And if I could, you know, at my funeral, <laughs> I would like to be dancing Greek music or have everyone else do it. I mean, it's me. That dance is me. So, and it is uh, part of being part of a community because in the circle dance, you're with others, being in your body and embracing the world and grounding yourself in the earth. Um, what else do Judith and I talk about? I'm, I'm not opposed to gossip because I think um, being interested in life is the most important thing. Hartshorn said that. Um, and uh, our process, one of our process mentors. Um, and I think if gossip isn't um, intended to harm another person but simply to express an interest in life, I think it's really important to think about why people do things and why I how they're different than ourselves, and we talk about things like that. And um, we do talk, we have talked about theology a lot because we haven't had anybody else to talk about it with in many cases. Um, obligations, not a word that I feel comfortable with, um, but I do feel um, that <clears throat> my spirituality motivates me um, to be concerned about other people and the whole web of life. I don't really like confessing my sins or being obligated to do something. 
I would much rather be inspired by caring about someone else to do something than by my feeling of my worthlessness, like I'm evil, I did this, I'm bad. I just, that doesn't, that doesn't inspire me at all. So that's why I like to think of, in my, in Rebirth of the Goddess, I talked about Eros, a uh, sense of connection that motivates you to care about the other as you care about yourself. And that, for me, includes the whole web of life. So when I began bird watching, I immediately noticed the degradation of the wetlands. And I love the birds. And so I couldn't help but want to protect their habitat. And it, what didn't feel like obligation, it felt like love. American Protestantism. Um, as I said, I was brought up, I'm certainly white, and I look wasp, I suppose. But actually, um, my father's family were Catholics, and uh, my mother's family were Christian Science, although prior to that, they had been Quakers, and prior to that, they'd, some of them had been Puritans. Um, so American Protestantism is actually not a place I've felt comfortable, because when I was 10 years old, we moved neighborhoods, and we went to a Presbyterian church where uh, the new kids, the new people who moved into the neighborhood were not welcomed into the club atmosphere of the sort of, of the ki other kids and their parents. I wasn't allowed to join the Girl Scout troop because I was new in town. So I feel a class bias in American Protestantism. I haven't felt comfortable. And that's why as a young adult, I was much more comfortable in the Catholic Church. That's the one I left. Um, living outside of the country, for more than 20 years. Um, I'm very uh, aware of American exceptionalism, and it really graded on me in, in uh, the election, hearing how great America is all the time. Um, I don't think it's the greatest country in the world, and I do think that comes from a sense of entitlement that came through American Protestantism, God's covenant with Israel, then with Christianity, and then with America. Um, so, I don't know what else I want to say about that. Um, to those, uh, we were talking, I had lunch with Miranda, and we were talking about Buddhism and enlightenment, and um, I mentioned that um, our friend Rita Gross had died last year, and just before she died, I received an email that she had entered into an advanced state of meditation which um, only advanced meditators can enter into, and it helps them accept death. And when I read it, I laughed because I've accepted death for a very long time. I don't fear my death. I fear, su I fear suffering, but I don't fear death. I think it's absolutely appropriate. Um, so Miranda laughed and said, I guess you're enlightened already. <laughs> but um, in... My work in Crete, on the Goddess Pilgrimage to Crete, um, I, in, Crete, in ancient Crete, um, they buried people in a communal tomb. They didn't have individual graves. The tomb itself was around and was entered by a narrow passageway, so it was womb-like. And then after a certain amount of time, they moved the bones to the ossuary, and there was no sense of individual of the individual body being preserved, which I take to mean that they didn't look towards individual life being preserved. What I think is much more important is that life be preserved. 
that life goes on, and that's what causes me the greatest pain in our time because species are becoming extinct. The possibility of a flourishing life for the amount of people on our planet is becoming increasingly bleak, and I think we should be concerned not about our own individual immortality, but about the future generations of life, and that's enough for me. But how do we talk to people? I, I did know um, there's my friend from CIIS there um, and in the Women's Spirituality Program. Almost all of my students, even though they, most of them were you know, some form of new age or goddess or something um, not, not traditional believers, they all believed in um, some form of immortality, almost all of them. <laughs> and they, they spoke of it more in terms of reincarnation, but they thought of that as their individuality coming back. So I was shocked. Um, and um, so I think you're right, Mary, that, it, that people have a strong desire to cling to some idea like that. Thank you, Carol and Judith, for those responses. And thank you to the panelists again for their questions. Um, I'd like to open the floor now for those who would like to get into the conversation and raise questions. If you would just stand where you are and uh, give us your name, too, so we know who's speaking, and uh, address your question either to Carol or Judith or perhaps even to one of the panelists, if you wish. So um, the floor is open. You might repeat the questions, Mary, for those. Yeah, I'll repeat the questions for the sake of... And your name is? Can everyone hear? I just want to test so I don't. Can you hear? Um, how about come up and use the microphone? That, where's our microphone in? Yeah. It's hard to see with these lights. It's okay. I'm Joyce Irwin. I was at Yale with, with Carol and, and Judith. Um, and so, of course, part of the book, the interest of the book, had to do with memories of that time. But, <laughs> but I also appreciate that in the intervening years that, that I haven't reflected as much on these questions, and you, you caused me to reflect, and I appreciate that, and to think about how my experiences caused me to experience Yale differently, and uh, I'm not sure I have the answer to that, but anyway, I, I enjoyed reading about your memories of liberating the men's uh, bathroom in the basement of the Divinity School Library, so we joined in that. Um, I also appreciated, Judith, your a couple of mentions of music in relation to that, and that's what's, what really was my experience at Yale, was, was why was I singing Renaissance motets when there were anti-war protests? And so the ethical, aesthetic issues have been important to me, and you know, I would like it if you developed that a little more. But, but anyway, I, I really appreciate the book. Thank you very much. Thank you, go ahead. Um, hi, my name is Elizabeth, and I know some of you very well. Um, I have two questions for Judith and Carol. The first question is, both of you speak a lot about the interconnection of life, and um, you spoke about the obligation that that entails, but what about complicity? Um, how comfortable are you in, in talking in terms of being the fact that we are all interconnected then makes us all complicit? 
So that's my first question. My second question is on the face of it, you might say, oh, Judith seems more comfortable with power. Um, and Carol's not very comfortable with power. She's a, hence a personal God and a limited God. But you have to dig down deeper and you see that Carol's um, idea of power is a persuasive power, right? Or a, a, um, a, a power that solicits in terms of the erotic. Um, so my question to Judith, I guess, or first of all, you, Carol, you can say more about that, but then my question to Judith is, I imagine that that's, those are forms of power you're comfortable with too, but um, I think about teaching your book in my class and students are always stuck on your question about is law a feminist form? And so I guess I wonder if you talk about the kinds of power you envision as divine power. Um, you talk about good and evil, but would you talk about then in terms of coercive power or even punitive power? Um, so I guess I'd like to both elaborate a little bit further on how you understand power. Um, I'm very comfortable talking about complicity. I think that's one of the ways my theology is better than Carol's. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting down to it. No, because um, my insistence on the ambiguity of all things to me means that we really need to deal with um, the evils I, I don't want to create a du dualistic categories of good and evil, but I think that we need to look at the elements of what I'll call evil um, and, and complicity within ourselves. Um, I mean, I've felt um, ever since I first noticed Christian feminist anti-Judaism um, in the 1970s, um, and began writing about it and then noticed that I was guilty of exactly the same things in relation to race that I was accusing Christian feminists of, um, that notion of um, looking at our own responsibility uh, for the um, injustice in the world has been a really important part of my thinking. So. I'm very comfortable talking about that. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't talk about God's, I mean, if, if you don't have a personal God, you can't have coercive power. Um, I, I think of God's power as energy, an energy that's moving through all things. That's the um, spark of creativity um, in the universe of becoming and dying and, and being reborn. So um, the, the notion of um, dominance or coercion really doesn't have any place um, in my thinking. <coughs> and I think, I mean, one of the things that I trace in the book is my movement from uh, I always thought of God as containing both good and evil. But as a young person, I thought of God as personal. And then I was stuck with the issue of God's responsibility for evil um, and issues of dominance and, and coercion. And it was in, in giving up the notion of God as person, I gave up also those 
ideas of power, but I didn't give up the idea of the ambiguity of all things. Um, in uh, giving up the idea of the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I have a, you know, broadly speaking, as does Monica, a uh, process uh, view of divine power, and um, one of the important uh, elements of that is the notion that um, <clears throat> God cannot have all the power uh, if, if uh, we're going to have any power at all. And one of the things um, that Hartshorn, which is one of, I never met him, although I received perhaps his last letter um, when he was 102. Um, Hartshorn says that he uses the term the zero fallacy. If God has all the power, then we have zero. And that has to be a fallacy because we, we, act, we go around acting like we have power. So the other, only other alternative is it's an illusion and you know we really don't have any power. Um, one of the things I particularly appreciated in process theology is the notion that it's not only human beings who have power, um, but it's all beings in the web of life down to the smallest particles of an atom that have power. And that means we're all influencing um, each other all the time. And so although I, Judith's right, I don't, probably don't like the term complicity as much as she does. Um, uh, it's my, my worldview um, understands that there's power in, in, you know, that we have power as human beings and um, all beings in the web of life, like my dog and your dog and um, the toad, um, they all have power and they're all influencing each other. And my worldview um, accepts the fact that death is part of life and that um, for mammals, eating is part of life, whether it's plants or, um, or other flesh. So I, <clears throat> I understand that there's um, a great deal of suffering in the world and that there's not life without suffering. Um, and, and we need to take responsibility for, as Miranda said, um, creating as little of that as possible. Um, the divine power for me, um, since it doesn't have all the power, what power can it have then? Um, it's a power that I experience and, um, yeah, I experience as, as close to me as my own breath. It also feels kind of like an aura around my body and it's, uh, as I agree with uh, Monica, although I say it's loving, I also believe it's understanding. It understands all of us in the deepest possible way. Um, and that means it understands our flaws as well as our goodness. <laughs> um, and we need to um, understand ourselves in that way as well. Um, I'm not sure I'm rambling on here. Um, but the divine power for me is, um, is, is a power of good. And the positive value of my view <laughs> in relation to Judith is one can ask Judith, why should we do good at all if the, if, this, um, if the divine power is indifferent to good and evil? Why shouldn't we be indifferent to good and evil? And my view offers the idea that the divine power is inspiring us towards the good. Well, thank you. Um, I want to say... Name? Oh, sorry. Arisika Razak, um, Women's Spirituality, see at California Institute of Integral Studies. So um, first, I, I, Monica, I, I, I want to preface this by saying I have not read the book yet. 
But I want to really thank Monica for the comment about whiteness dripping off the page because I, that was one of my thoughts about how did this book apply to people in other um, locations. And I want to thank both um, Judith and Carol for addressing that in your subsequent remarks because I think it's important. And, I, and so partly there's a comment about that I'd like us to think less in terms of the book and think about the books, plural, the theories, plural. And, but the question I want to ask is, given that the title of this book, Goddess and God in the World, um, so there's a part of me that you know, has, you know, like all of you, a personal relationship to spirit as I define it. And in this moment, you know, because I really do identify with those people who are dying in the streets, I really identify as someone who is going to be living on social security and goddess only knows what's going to happen to it, you know, in the next four years. So thinking about poor communities, and I, I was a midwife for 20 years in the county hospital, so really heard the stories of poor women from all over the world. What is your theology calling us to do in this moment where I feel we're standing at the edges of so many precipices, you know, whether they are climate devastation, whether they are nuclear war, what, you know, that we're, do you feel, you know, because some of you, I'm 68, so veteran of civil rights movement, anti-war movements, all of that. Do you feel that this moment in America is different? Is this, I mean, there's, is this where we've always been? I mean, there's some truth in that argument. What does your theology, what is your theology calling you to do at this moment? which I feel is so pregnant with possibilities, impossibilities, threat, death, in a different way. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder if that's something we might all respond to, actually. But, but I would say that my theology calls me to rise up in resistance in community with others and to discern with others what the most effective um, and crucial responses are at this moment. So I can't name a thing that we need to resist because we need to resist on so many fronts simultaneously and I assume that different ones of us will choose different priorities and that what's important is that we're all resisting but I think what's crucial for me um, is the notion of, uh, as I said, coming to the, uh, uh, discerning how it's necessary to act in this moment in community with others. Um, and I, I'm very involved with Jews for Racial and Economic Justice in New York, um, which is part of uh, broader communities for police accountability and has as a principle that those most affected by a situation should be <clears throat> the ones to speak, and we work as allies with a host of organizations. And it's it's very powerful for me at this moment to have been involved with them for a while and to know that they are thinking with others and that I'm gonna be 
part of that. And, and to me, that's, that's what my theology calls me to do right now. Um, yeah, I just wrote a blog called Keeping On, Keeping On, and um, I don't know how I feel. Um, is it, I think it's worse than it has been, but on the other hand, it's been really bad before, too. And I think sometimes it's white privilege that makes uh, white people feel so depressed about this, um, what's happening now, and it's kind of like we expected, or some white people expected that things wouldn't be bad or couldn't be bad. Um, so I think we need to, I mean, I agree with everything Judith said. We need to um, find things that we can do to resist um, the situation in America. The situation in Europe is also increasingly um, problematic and, and very uh, th you know, threatening um, of democracy in Europe as well. Uh, global climate change, I mean, uh, Refugees have been coming into my island um, for the last several years and um, not coming in in the numbers now, but uh, the Green Party put out a paper that I helped to translate um, into English for someone and they pointed out that people are already beginning to flee Africa because of global climate change and this is going to continue. And even if we could stop the war in Syria and people stop fleeing right from the Middle East because of war, we're still going to have a huge migration problem um, in the world because of global climate change. And yeah, so we have to we have to work on all fronts at the same time. And Michael Moore and said, you know, we need a, a movement led by young people, and I think that's probably true. Um, also, um, Elizabeth Warren said, you know. Donate two hours, um, um, if you can, donate two hours to uh, volunteering for any any of these good causes, whether it's World Wildlife Fund or Black Lives Matter or Planned Parenthood. But be prepared to strengthen those organizations, whatever organizations you can work with, so that we can all come together when we need to stronger and make coalitions. But what we're going to do against Trump, I don't know, because there's going to be so much more dark money, so much more voter suppression. I don't even know if this election was democratic. Um, so all we can do is just, I think, keep doing what we've been doing and do, do it more and try to do it more together. Thank you. Go right ahead. Maybe the panelists want to. Yeah, do you want to yeah. speak to me? No. <laughs> somebody have the microphone? I, I have. Okay, go ahead. Is that all right? Yeah. Um, my, my name is Trelawney Grenfell Muir. Um, you might remember me because when Sochi and Gina, who run your feminism and religion blog, wrote a recent book on women, religion, revolution, I'm the one who wrote the chapter on Christ as a cosmic vagina. So my question is for the whole panel, and it's about prayer. And I apologize, I haven't read your book yet, um, but listening to this panel has been one of the most inspiring things I've ever experienced at NAAAR. <laughs> so I want to thank you all. Um, but I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, how prayer comes out of your beliefs and, and your sort of your situation that you're all in. And I loved your, Miranda was talking about dance as a prayer, and this is something I do. I'm a Christian pagan, and so dance prayer is something I love. Um, but it just strikes me that all of you probably have wonderful ideas of prayer that I would love to hear about. So if any of you are willing to share that, 
then I'd be really grateful. I know most people aren't going to be praying to a cosmic vagina, like <laughs> I'm kind of a freak, but I would love to hear what you do, and, uh, and I think it would be enriching for all of us. So. I mean, I speak from uh, my personal practices, which are, of course, undergirded by my own theology that I think would be great for everybody if they want it. Um, I pray through dance. I pray through pouring water and pouring libations to ancestors. I pray by telling my daughter stories of ancestors. Um, I pray by taking care of her when she wakes up at four in the morning. Lord knows it's spiritual practice. Um, she doesn't really do daylight savings time. Um, you know, I pray as I teach my students. I mean, for me, all of these are prayer. I pray when I talk to God and say, I, well, we survived that day. Phew, you know, <laughs> I mean, for me, all of this is prayer. Um, to me, speaking out against injustice is prayer. Um, so I guess the idea that prayer is just about a one-way or two-way communication with God, um, I maintain that, but I think it's also like how do I communicate with God and how do I embody God um, on a daily basis and feel God talking to me as well. So that, those are my, I can't see where you sat, so I'm not sure where to look. Oh, there, yeah. Um, so those are, are my you. prayer practices. Anybody else? Sure. Um, so I, for all their feminist problems, I, I really love traditional Jewish prayer language. And uh, with all of its masculinity and hierarchy, and there's a way in which, for me, Praying that is davening in a in a Jewish in that Jewish idiom connects me to reminds me that there is something more than me out there. There's something about community. There's something about a sort of ancientness. I don't know. I, this is a place where I think, yeah, it's not all rational. Um, so I love that, and I love to lose myself. There's something about that liturgy that allows me to lose myself into a stream that is way bigger and deeper and older than I will ever become as an individual. But alongside that, I have a very robust personal prayer practice that's um, quite, that's really about being in conversation with goddess. Um, and I used to be afraid that that was a very heretical, I mean, we, People like to say, like, Jews don't do heresy, but I don't think you get to say that until you've been a goddess-loving Jew in rabbinical school. Like, it's, it does, you, you can actually um, push the edge, right? So um, I think that's a place where I feel those two, I talked about the kind of multilingual nature of theology for me. That's a place where I've said yes to both and believe they shouldn't have to fight to the death. Um, I just let them both live together. I forgot one thing that I think actually coheres with where Carol and Judith are coming from, and that is when um, we decided how to teach our daughter about religion as an infant. We're like, well, we really, she's not really verbal, so it wouldn't make sense to talk, um, although, of course, we talked to her. Um, we decided we were going to sing prayers to her. 
And so what we do and what she, I catch her singing them to herself around the house. We sing her freedom songs. Um, so most of my prayers, I forget because I do it all the time, are spirituals, African-American spirituals and Sweet Honey in the Rock. Um, and these are the songs that she grows up with as her prayers. And we just picked our favorite songs from Agape, which is new thought in orientation, but very liberative new thought. Um, and those are our graces. And those are the ones we choose to do um, for communal. And she teaches them to her friends and her cousins. Like, this is how you're supposed to say grace. Um, and so that also becomes an active prayer life. And I intentionally chose them to be stories of women and stories mm -hmm. of our people. Yes, I'd, I'd pick up on um, the first comment and say that for me, probably the most powerful form of prayer is singing, and um, it's it's important for me to do that in the context of Jewish community. That's very powerful, but I also sing in a chorus, and um, we do a lot of uh, you know great musical works, and we're doing a Dvorak mass this semester, for example, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm aware that that's also a form of prayer, and it's kind of interesting to me that I might be singing these very traditional Christian words. For, fortunately, they're in Latin, so. Uh, well, and, and fortunately, Jewish prayer is in Hebrew, um, so I don't, I don't always have to confront the words, but it's, it's the making music together um, that is a particularly powerful um, form of prayer for me. <clears throat> One last comment. Molly's going to. You want to pray tonight? Yes. <laughs> this is a uh, song that Judith taught me, and um, <clears throat> I'll let her sing it. Yeah. As we bless the source of life, so we are blessed. As we bless the source of life, so we are blessed. And the blessing I don't gives know that us strength and makes our visions clear. And the blessing gives us, I said something wrong, strength and the courage to dare. As we bless As the, the source of life, so we are blessed. We sing that on the Goddess Pilgrimage Decree <coughs> also. And um, one of the things that in my own personal life I do is often sit in the backyard and have my um, breakfast in my garden and I have a fountain and the birds come and um, bathe in the fountain and it's uh, kind of I realize that I I don't do like Buddhist meditation you know with my eyes closed I like to meditate with my eyes open and but I go into kind of trance and that brings me into contact with the web of life also in the goddess pilgrimage to Crete we have a tradition of pouring libations on altars and it's really an amazing thing because um, most Protestants, I suppose most Christians, don't pour libations, but um, you pour a liquid onto either the earth or a stone in the earth or an altar which is rooted in the earth. And if you all come up, it, it creates a kind of dance too, getting back to movement, 
where one by one people come up, you don't have to say anything, and you pour your libation so there's a movement in the circle, and it's the movement in the grace of life, and often we're singing something like, as we bless the source of life, so we are blessed, or light and darkness, um, different songs while we're pouring the libations. Those are some of my forms of prayer. Thank you so much. I promised our panelists that we would be finished at 6.10. It is now 6.09. So I'm going to um, invite those who have further questions or comments for the panelists to come up afterwards and uh, have a chance to speak individually with people, have your books autographed. Um, it is, of course, my unhappy task of having to close this fascinating, and I would say, if I might, sacred conversation. Um, I do so with a high recommendation for this book, Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology. We have had the experience of one such conversation. I urge you to use this book with study groups, with classes, for your dissertation, for your own uh, theological thinking. And most of all, I urge you, and especially in light of some of the questions and comments, to have these conversations, have these hard conversations, and let the courage and the boldness and the daring of Carol and Judith to have this conversation with each other over a long period of time be a kind of incentive to the rest of us to do the same thing. I also would invite us to write down those conversations. I think having the conversation is one thing, but having it now available for other people is just a marvelous model, both of pedagogy and a generosity of spirit to show where these differences are and how, in fact, we move along through life and maintain them but also modify them. I think those are the things that have been most impressive about the book and about this session this afternoon. I agree with the uh, earlier person raising the question saying that this is in fact one of the most powerful sessions at the AAR that I think many of us have experienced. I wanna say deep thanks to Judith and to Carol, to Aisha, to Julia, to Monica, and to Miranda for being part of this conversation. And in fact, thanks to all of you for joining in. I hope that you'll have a great rest of the AAR and many great embodied conversations. We now turn to the business meeting for women in religion, which will commence in five minutes. Thank you and good evening.